Good evening, everyone, and welcome. Tonight's class is titled It's No Laughing Matter, Part 2. And I'd like to start off with a look into the story of the Sota. We're holding in the middle of chapter 24. We're talking about how someone who sins is worse than the sin itself. Someone who sins is worse than evil itself. And for us to really understand what we're going to continue learning, let's take a look into the story of the Sota. Just by raise of hand, how many people here are familiar with the passage in the Torah about the Sota, this adulterous wife? To quickly recap, the Torah shares that if a woman is suspected by her husband of doing something inappropriate, to be clear, being in seclusion with a man, the husband first should warn his wife not to do that. If she keeps on going ahead and doing it, they are prohibited one from the other, and the husband has to take her to the Kohen in the temple. And a whole procedure happens. And the truth is, very, it's very uh, uncommon, the only place I'm familiar with. We call it, we, we, regarding this, we say the woman is acting like an animal. It's a quote. The Talmud says she brings an She's, she's acting like an animal and therefore she should go ahead and bring a sacrifice of an animal. Tractate Sota, 49 pages in it. Page 3, side 1, Dafkim Lamad Aleph. A very famous quote. Never forget this, Morisara. Same for, same for, of course, Gershon and everyone in the classroom. Good evening, Millie. The Gemara says as follows. Reish Lakesh Amar, the famous Reish Lakesh, started off as a bandit. And he became the great, one of the greatest Torah scholars ever. Reish Lakesh says. Married Rabbi Yochanan Zakai's sister. Ain Adam over Avera, a person will never sin. Elohim Kain, unless Nichnas Bo Ruachstus, a spirit of folly has entered. Meaning, unless he's gotten a little foolish, if his mind is straight, his or her mind, a person will never sin. Where do we know this from? Shanema, Reish Lakesh continues, he says, I have a clear proof that a human, will, a Jew, will never sin unless a spirit of foolishness has entered into him. Because the Torah says, Ish, Ish, Kisista, Ishto. The Torah says, regarding the story of the Sota, and before I continue translating the Pasuk, I first need to give you a little gr Hebrew grammar. How do you say turn in Hebrew? Pana. Pana. Good, good. That would be an awesome word. I'm looking for a different word here. Over here we're looking for the word Sateh. Sate could also mean to turn. It also means to, does it also mean to deviate? Deviate, exactly. Because it's used in statistics. The, yes, yes. I, I, deviate actually is a much more appropriate word than turn. If a woman deviates, well, if the Torah wanted to say that a woman is deviating from the appropriate path, being in seclusion with this man, the Torah should have used the word sate. And to, the letters of sate are saf, tes, hey. Saf Tashe would say deviate if a woman deviates. 
And yet the Torah sticks a letter into this word sateh. The Torah sticks a sin in there. So when the Torah is saying if a woman deviates, instead of using the word sateh, it says sista. Seemingly it's the wrong word. Again, if the Torah just wants to tell me that this woman is deviating from the appropriate method, method of a Jewish woman, so just say the words kisata ishto if your woman, if your wife deviates. Why are you saying kisista ishto? Why are you adding this funny letter? Comes Rabbi and he says the word sista really means shtus. Have you all heard the word shtus? What a shtus! What does shtus mean to be? What a sh how do you translate shtus? Nonsense. Nonsense. Oh. Now what a shtus? You know, your mother never told you what a shtus. No, I thought you said something else. I, I was you. thinking of something else too. <laughs> <laughs> but shtus. You've heard the word shtus yishai. No. Oh, I'm disappointed. Let me think of a, let me think of a terminology you'll have heard it in. Mishagas. Mishagas is craziness. Shtus, shtus is Hebrew. Ashota. You've heard of ashota? Ashota is a derogatory term. It's not really derogatory. Really, ashota means someone who... In, in halakhic terminology, ashota is someone who cannot... Uh, who doesn't have a head on his shoulders. Unfortunate, it's a real halachic term. Someone is a shota, he doesn't know how to count money. So you can't count them for a minion. Why? It, it's, a very, it's a very sad story, but he's not fully there. Shota, sishta means that a shtos is foolishness. If you're doing a shtos, then you're doing something foolish. So different from a nar. A nar, a nar literally means a child. So you called an adult a child, you're telling him you're acting like a child, you're telling him you're acting foolish. But the word foolish in Hebrew is what? Remind me? Shtus. Kisishta ishto. Instead of saying the word kisata by de by what was the word you used before? Kisata. Deviating. Instead of just using the word deviating, the Torah uses the word sista to tell me that the only way a woman could deviate, the only way anyone could deviate is if why? Is if a shtus, if a spirit of foolishness entered inside of them. So thus says Reish Lakish. Let's read the Gemara again. This is a phenomenal Gemara, famous Gemara. Never forget it. Let's quote it again. Reish Lakish, Amar Reish Lakish teaches us, Aver a person will never sin, unless the spirit of foolishness has entered inside of him. How do I know? Shenemar, because the Torah says, Ish ish sista ishto. Sista ksiv. It says sista. Foolish. It should have just said sata to deviate. Teaches me. You'll only sin if a spirit of foolishness enters inside. If you have any questions on this Talmud tractate, Sota 3a. No questions? Did, did, this any did you say it's one of the most important tractates? Is that no. Said? I said it's, one, it's a very important quote. All right. The quote is a very important one. Sharon, clear? One, you're with me? Good. Yes, right now we're just we're, we're learning an idea. No, no, it's a good question. But in case you're asking, it's on page 102. But, uh, but we're not going to get there for about 15 minutes. I want to talk about this point. <laughs> we have a problem here. 
An adulterous woman is one of the worst sins. And the Torah is telling me over there a spirit of foolishness entered. How could Reish Lakesh come and say, from here we learn that any sin, even if you're just transgressing a minor, minor sin, foolishness. No, maybe the Torah is telling me, the Torah is telling it to me by very serious sin. That such, maybe such a serious sin is where you need to be really foolish to do it, but a smaller sin, maybe not. Why is the Torah teaching me such a crucial idea that you'll only sin if a spirit of foolishness enters you by such a grave sin? Better teach it to me by a simple sin. Tell me, if someone forgot to wash their hands in the morning after waking up, is such a thing is because a spirit of foolishness entered them. How much more so a greater sin? But why is the Torah teaching me by a grave sin that foolishness needs to enter? Teach it to me by a lighter sin. Yishai, question clear? How does it enter? Is the foolishness? Could be a reaction to uh, the husband's lack of attention or some other... Uh... You're asking a good question. You're asking in this case, how did the <laughs> foolishness enter? Yeah. The Mishnah says perform each sin, whether you think it's a light sin or a heavy sin, perform each commandment. You don't know what the reward is for each of them. So perform each of them as if they were all of magnitude. Yes, you should never weigh a mitzvah. Yishai, to answer your question directly, Yishai is asking, if there's an adulterous woman, then there's an issue in their marriage. There's a reason it's happening. That's what you're asking. Well, Where did it come from? It didn't just happen. Yeah, it could be, right? Right, right. The truth is, the Torah itself, um, in different ways, hints to it. One of the ways the, tor the Torah hints to it is, the Torah previously was talking about a man being a miser. And there's a discussion that if, uh, yeah, basically if a husband is not treating his spouse and giving her what he needs, then unfortunately maybe it can lead her to inappropriate things. The Torah has a sequence there. But I want to focus back here. But that wouldn't be a spirit of foolishness then, would it? Of, absolutely. If the Torah says you can't do a sin, so just because your husband isn't treating you correctly, you're allowed to go sin? No. You need to go take care, you need to take care of whatever the issue is. If you have an issue with your husband, take care of it. But that's not a reason to go ahead and do a tremendous sin. Basically, if someone's marriage is in shadows, it doesn't mean that they should go and have a new relationship in the current marriage. Right. Agreed? Yeah. Okay, so let's continue. So why does the Torah teach us such a phenomenal idea that you'll only sin if a spirit of foolishness entered by such a grave such a grave law. And I, I want to share with you some phenomenal thoughts. Number one. Why does Hashem care if we sin? In other words, we know that Hashem is so much greater than us. And we have no relative, there's no relativity between the two of us. So, why is it that a sin is such a big deal to Hashem? Have, have I shared before the story of the man on radio? No? Let, let me share it at this point. <laughs> there was a talk show host who was interviewing a Chabad rabbi. Goes back four, 
goes back to Man Went to the Moon when? 1967? 1969. 1969. So it's going back to 1969. Uh, almost 50 years ago. And a man was being, in, a rabbi was being interviewed and the talk show host had a phenomenal question. He said, Rabbi, I don't understand. If someone goes ahead and kills, I understand. The Torah says, he deserves, the, he deserves the death penalty. Understood. But you have such a crazy law. The law is that if on Shabbos you go ahead and carry outside of the halachic domain, so the, the Torah says that there's capital punishment for such a thing. Such a simple thing. You, you, you left something in your pocket capital punishment like so I, I don't understand it doesn't make sense it doesn't add up so the rabbi says great question but he says think about it the Talmud tells us murder the capital crime never happened if a if a bet in if a court of law would kill twice in 70 years they were considered murderers 70 years murderers so they never and why did it never happen because in order to give someone capital punishment you had to warn him within three seconds of, of doing the actual capital punishment. There had to be two witnesses that saw from the same direction. The witnesses couldn't be related to one another. It was practically impossible to really give someone capital punishment. So yes, the Torah may say this is the law, but it didn't practically happen. The Rebbe heard about the incident. And the Rebbe, he said, no, no, no. Let's say much deeper. Okay, that's true. The truth is, yes, capital punishment didn't really happen. And yes, as Hamlet says in, in Makos on uh, page 7, that yes, if you kill once in 70, twice in 70 years, you're murderer. It's true. But let's think much deeper. Why does Hashem say for such a simple thing there's capital punishment? And He says, we're right now holding when they're sending man to the moon. He says, imagine... Anyone have a clue how much money in those days was spent on the first rocket ship to the moon? I don't know. A billion dollars? Two billion dollars? Ten billion dollars. Ten billion dollars is invested in sending man to the moon. And he says, imagine. The whole world has invested in these three astronauts who are going to go to the moon. And they've taught them for years, trained them for years. And they gave them 613 laws, or very many. And one of them was, do not smoke on the <coughs> spaceship. <laughs> that would make sense, not to smoke. So they're in the middle of the flight to the moon. And Neil Armstrong says, I really need a smoke. And he starts smoking. Is it a cigar or a cigar? <laughs> Whatever you want it to be. And the whole flight is aborted. The whole flight, the whole flight's canceled. They have to come back to Earth. Imagine. Imagine the scenario. Okay, so now you ask yourself, what's the big deal about what Neil Armstrong did? Nothing. He just uh, just smoked a he just smoked a cigar. Nothing big. But if you think about the impact of everything that, that was invested in, in these people then all of a sudden it's a whole new level. 
In other words, if we go ahead and we think, oh, I'm an individual and all I'm doing is and I'm just transgressing, yes, it's, but that's not who we are. We are all these astronauts going to the moon. The whole world is invested in us. On our shoulders stands, in a way, the responsibility of the world. We have the ability to make the world a better place with the opposite. <clears throat> 5,778 years have been vested in you. So now it's all of a sudden different. Every, every action of yours is on a higher pedestal. Okay, let's bring it back. Let's bring this back to our conversation here. If you have a marriage, the question we asked was, why are we learning such an important idea of foolishness entering by such a grave sin? We're talking here about marriage. And when two people are married, so then a, there needs to be trust between the two. And if there's no trust, we're in real trouble. And that explains to us how come Hashem cares about our sin. Why does Hashem care? Because we're His wife. That's what we learn. We learn by Matan Torah. Hashem is the husband. And the, the Torah is our contract, the Ksuba. And we're Hashem's wife. Well, if there's a marriage here, so now all of a sudden our actions are so much more meaningful. In other words, why are we learning such a phenomenal idea of foolishness needing to enter by such a grave sin? Because this, this topic of marriage, of a husband and wife, and of spouses not being honest to each other, that is why our keeping of Torah and mitzvot is so important, because we are a spouse here. We are Hashem's spouse. We're not individuals. We're not just Moshe Mendel. We're not just Yishai, David. We're, no. We are Moshe Mendel married to Hashem. Any Basha, does, does that thought make sense? Yeah. Let's take it a step further. Let's look a little deeper at a husband and wife within their with let's look a little deeper, sorry, at this specific law of a sota. A sota, a woman accused of being a sota, did she do anything wrong? Yes or no? We don't know until after she goes through the process. Exactly. The answer is, there was no sin committed. All that we know is, factually, she was in seclusion in a room with a man or husband asked her not to be. But did a sin happen? We don't know. And we have no way to know, aside, there's no way to know aside for this test that will be administered and Hashem will let us know. So did she commit a sin? We don't know. Is she forbidden to her husband until proven innocent or guilty? Yes. From when her husband suspects there may have been an incident, she's forbidden to her husband. In other words, in other words, we're worried maybe something wrong happened. But why do we call her an animal? Why, do, why are we saying that some... What did she do wrong? There was no sin committed the very fact that she went into seclusion when her, when her spouse had said not to 
and she had put herself into a situation which the Torah says you shouldn't have seclusion between a man and a woman, that it, the act itself was inappropriate. So something inappropriate happened. Is she, in, is she in bad space if she didn't sin? Who knows what happens? If a woman didn't sin, she, she is she's accused of being a sot and she didn't sin. What happens? Are you asking about the process? No, I want to know the end result. What's the end result, Basha? She's blessed. The Gemara says if she, had if she had a hard labor, she'll now have easy labor. She'll be blessed with beautiful children. So all of a sudden, the woman, she acted inappropriately. But the moment she's proven innocent from the sin she was um, accused of, so to say, she's now blessed. And this, taking her inappropriate action of seclusion with the man and going to the blessing, the ultimate blessing, this is really the lesson of our lives. This is another important detail we take out here. Again, the woman is accused of doing something inappropriate. The woman went into seclusion with a man that's inappropriate in and of itself. Now we're worried maybe there was an inappropriate action. When she's proven innocent, she's all of a sudden going to have the greatest blessing. This teaches us something phenomenal for ourselves. It teaches us that this is a story of our lives. We may sin. But let's take that sin and turn it into the ultimate blessing. Do not let it stop us. The woman went into seclusion with the man. She did something inappropriate, but now she's all of a sudden going to get the ultimate blessing. Easy childbirth. So let's take our challenges and turn them into the ultimate blessing. So now let's fully recap on this conversation. The Gemara says, Reish Lakeh shares with us that, that any time a sin happens, it's only happening because the spirit of foolishness enters. Where do we learn out this idea? We learn it out from the soul of the adulterous woman. So we asked, why are you telling me such an important lesson of foolishness needing to enter by a sota? We gave two thoughts. Number one, to share with us why does Hashem care if we sin? Well, that's because we're Hashem's wife. It's the story of, of marriage. The sota we're Hashem's wife, and when, when we're talking about a marriage, the two spouses need to take the best care of each other. We have to look out for the best of one another, and if we're sinning against one, that's a big issue. Number two, the second reason why we're learning this, this idea by a sota, is because just like the sota, she did something inappropriate. The fact that she was in seclusion was something inappropriate. But ultimately, that seclusion is going to lead to the greatest blessing of her life, of having beautiful children, of having easy childbirth. So too, if someone sinned, let them not worry. Let them know that that sin can actually take them to the highest levels. Gershon, with this we conclude this thought. Yes? Uh, I'm still... Ask away. The foolishness part. Please. Is it something like this, that if somebody loves somebody and the other person does something to lose their trust, the average person might get very angry and upset, but somebody who's maybe much wiser, in this case Hashem, kind of sees all of their qualities, not just their bad qualities, and it's kind of writing it off as foolishness, not as intentional. Uh, in other words, like, they don't, they don't know any better, they don't have enough 
I mean, they, they should know better, right? But it's a different way of looking at things. You can look at somebody who did you wrong angrily and with, you know, bad feelings, or you could kind of... You're saying, it's a, you're saying, are, does the Gemara mean to say that it's a different perspective? Maybe Hashem gives, has a different perspective because Hashem sees every corner of our soul and isn't necessarily being so judgmental. And is, it's not a good thing. So this is, this is actually about you and me. It's not about Hashem. Let me try and explain. You ever heard about the man who said he loves fish? A man said, I love, I love fish. So the rabbi said, you don't love fish, you like killing them and eating them. You like yourself. The same thing here. When a person sins, they're loving themselves. But if they would realize that there's a give and take here, that there's a marriage here. So then they would never commit that sin. If we wouldn't get so caught up, let's say, with ourselves, if we wouldn't get caught up in our mind with foolish thoughts, and we would know the reality, so to say, as we say, the facts on the ground, then we would never sin. It's talking about me. Right, but, but why... I don't, I don't understand why the... why, they, why the term foolish enters in. I mean, when you're talking about sin, you normally don't talk about foolishness. Let me ask you a very practical, a very practical question. I mean, I, I, I take away practical. It's very unpractical. But, uh, I, God forbid, but nonetheless, let me ask you, let's make up an incident. You have a beautiful marriage of a husband and wife, and the husband goes and starts having in the middle of this relationship a relationship with another woman. If he loves his first wife, so why is he involved in this other relationship all of a sudden? How is that happening? Because he's not being mindful and caring and, and keeping his vows. And I, know I like the he, first word you said. The, fir the first word you said is he's not being mindful. Yeah. Well, we're, we're calling that... That isn't foolish. I mean, he's willfully doing that. I guess what I'm trying to, what I'm trying to understand. What I'm trying to understand why is that foolishness, and I'm trying to understand. Got it. Got it. I, I think I, you're saying what's the definition of, of foolishness here? Yeah, I'm saying no. I'm not. I'm not agreeing that it, that it is just. It seems to me more severe. So I'm trying to understand. Maybe Hashem looks at at us differently and attributes it to foolishness. But Good. You're well, saying it's between. Human being. What is the definition of foolishness? And uh, the previous rabbi has a big discourse on this. And he defines di foolishness as not doing the intellectual thing. If you would think for a second, and you'd make an active decision based on the different uh, happenings, then this wouldn't be happening. Let's go back to that incident. If, if you're going to... Well, let's talk about ourselves. If we're going to focus and say, look, I have this connection to Hashem, and if I'm going to sin now, I'm actively going to destroy that connection. If, if you would think about that a moment before you sin, you're not going to sin. If, you, if, if you're going to focus, <laughs> you know, you, you're about to sin, and you say, look, I, you, you sit down for five minutes, and you focus on the greatness of Hashem and how Hashem created the entire world. 
and how I am so lucky that I'm nothing and nonetheless Hashem has chosen me to have this connection with Him. And now, in spite of all that, I'm going to go and do a sin? You wouldn't, you wouldn't do that. So foolishness we're defining as doing something without, without allowing the full thought process to take place. You thought before you sinned, but you didn't think of its full impact. But, but I would think that it would be thought of as more serious than that. That's, that's, I guess that was my only I understand. I, I think that's a good po- observation. But I think when a person's doing that, it's because they think they're going to have fun. They're not thinking, oh, I'm going to go commit a sin. I'm going to have some fun. And that's where the foolishness is, that we right. aren't thinking. It's emotional instead of intellectual. Yeah. But it right. isn't fun, and we get ourselves into more trouble right. when we do these, whatever <laughs> the sin is. No, these are good. They're all true. Yeah. Are, all... I think we need to distinguish between rational thought and rationalization. What I think the uh, what Rabbi um, what Rabbi um, Schneerson S O H N was getting at was that when one proceeds with rational thought, one will not sin. When one rationalizes, one will sin. It is uh, as much as it may be foolish. It's a rationalization as to why there's an exemption and why it's okay. And in fact, it's not okay. One rationalizes and does not proceed rationally. Karishan, did you understand what David said? Mm-hmm. I, I kind of did, actually. That was interesting. You had the same, yeah, the same <laughs> words, and you changed it a little bit, and they're completely different. No, no, I'm happy you did, because the truth is, that's a thought that the previous Rebbe says clearly. That was a very important thought. Three, recap. Rational is, is intellectual, right? And but to rationalize is you you take the sin and you adapt yourself and make it seem justify. Well, yeah, you justify. It. There's something else that's great about it. I think that's probably the only essay I ever read. The previous Remy. The other part that was interesting is you you spelled his name, and I'm not sure. Well, what was the purpose of that? Because usually it's known as S-O-N. The previous uh, Rebbe was uh, Rebbe Schneerson's father-in-law. He spelled it uh, the uh, um, exact way, S-O-H-N, which is Yiddish in Hebrew. Rebbe uh, Menachem Mendel Schneerson changed it when he came here to S-O-N. But Gershon, the reason why I, I want to go back to this point, you asked what's foolishness? And David reminded me, we're going to momentarily learn, the reason when someone sins it's foolish is because the thought process that they're subconsciously having is, we're going to learn at the sin of the Tanya, that what I'm doing now is not as severe as I think. In other words, if someone is going to recognize that with every sin, you're completely separating yourself from Hashem, you wouldn't sin. But the foolishness is that we are rationalizing, as David said, and really playing down the sin. So thank you. A- any questions here? Yeah. Yes, please. This is just like, you probably have an answer for it, but um, I'm not trying to go off on some feminist tangent, but the man, does he get punished? And if he doesn't, can we also be like, oh, we can sin and get away with it? 
just, just I want to be clear. I'm not sure which scenario we're I talking about. I don't think that's about. such a scenario. So repeatedly you say the woman is a soldier for being in seclusion. What about the man? The man that she was in seclusion yeah, with? What if he's married? Yeah. Well, actually, it doesn't matter if the man's married. If a man is married or not, it makes no difference. The man in seclusion with her um, will have the same terrible fate as her, we learn. Except uh, where, that's going to be wherever he is. She's going to be in the temple. Okay. But yes, yes. I just wanted to like make sure because if not, then we could be like, oh, so then we can't get away with stuff. But does he not? Not in the slightest. No. Not, not, no, you should just know it's... Yeah. Does he not? Uh, the, the, the lesson has to be consistent. That's what uh, uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Does he not suffer from death at the hands of heaven as opposed to the Beth Din? The woman doesn't suffer death at the hands of, of Beth Din either. In the story of the Sota, the end is... No, no, she... Well, it's a disgusting story and that, I won't mention it, but... That's the from man, heaven. The man is not sentenced by the Beth... If he's sentenced by the Beth Din, they don't stone him or choke him or whatever the sentence is. He suffers death at the hands of heaven, does he not? The Talmud shares... That because of different methods that unfortunately the woman would die, whatever method she would die by the hands of heaven, the same exact thing is going to happen to him. Well, wherever he is, yeah. we, we we could talk more about it at a later time. Later, yeah, but thank you, Elisha, for pointing that out. Yes, reading. completely. Um, everybody's held accountable. I mean, because I've learned this before, but I feel like there's always a lot of focus on the woman, so I just want to like clarify that. Absolutely. Yeah. No, thank you for clarifying it. So let's. Now look inside of Tanya. <laughs> Let's put it together. We're on page 102. Meanwhile, back at the Tanya. <laughs> <laughs> page 102, second word. Previously we discussed how when a person sins, they're worse than evil itself. Why? Because the evil knows that Hashem exists. So we have a technical question. If evil knows Hashem exists, so how could they be evil? How could we call evil Avodah Zarah? We refer to evil as idol worship. How could it be idol worship? They, they are following Hashem's word. What's wrong? And even though it is called Avodah Zarah, we're calling evil Avodah Zarah. But how could that be? How could you call evil Avodah Zarah? <laughs> they know Hashem like we know Hashem. No, no, no. He is at least acknowledged as the God of gods. Evil recognizes Hashem exists, but they feel that I am God, and there's a God to me also. They feel as separated entities from Hashem. And the latter are utterly powerless to contravene His will, blessed be He. So, evil knows that Hashem exists. They know they cannot contradict Hashem, but they still feel independent. Like Avodah Zarah, that's what idol worship is, feeling you're an independent. For they know and apprehend, evil knows and apprehends that He is their life and sustenance. Since they derive their nurture from the so-called hindermost part of the, of the will of the Supreme One, blessed is He which, is, which encompasses them. Evil knows Hashem is ultimately their life force. But Hashem is so disconnected from them that they feel that they're a separate entity from Hashem. 
and that's what we continue, it is only because their sustenance and inner life source are, as it were, an exile within them. Hashem is so concealed that they presume to regard themselves as gods, which is a denial of His unity. So the moment evil says, I'm a somebody, you're denying Hashem's unity. But nonetheless, they don't deny Hashem's existence. So let's recap. Evil denies Hashem's unity. They say, there's me and there's Hashem. But they don't deny Hashem's existence as the God of all gods. Nevertheless, they are not so completely heretical as to deny God and to assert that He does not exist. Only they regard Him as the God of gods, recognizing that their life and existence are ultimately derived and bestowed upon them from His will. Blessed be He. Therefore, they are never rebellious against His will. Blessed be He. Evil says, Hashem exists. I know He exists. He may have nothing to do with me, but He exists. Now, if I contradict His will, oh boy, will I get in trouble. Let me just not contradict His will. It's like a child, they say. As long as, or it's, it's like a student. As long as I don't get in the teacher's way, he won't know anything. You know, that's what evil says. What do we exactly talk, when we talk about evil, and we yeah. <clears throat> give it all these qualities, yeah. I get a little bit confused. Yeah. So like, I know we talked about Sitra. Yeah. It's all one. It's all one right now. But it, but it almost seems like there's this cast of unholy <laughs> different players that are all called evil. Yes. Uh, is there any way to clarify what's what, what's intended? By the, no, it almost seems like everything that we when when we commit a sin. Yeah. It's almost like these beings, these evil beings, are. Tempting us to do this. Or You're making me laugh. Today no, we had, I'm not trying to be funny. No, no, no. I want to tell I'm you. Today we had Eric Kimmel, author Eric Kimmel, come to talk to the students at Maimonides. And his first famous book is called Herschel and the Hanukkah. Herschel and the Goblins. Herschel and the Hanukkah Goblins. Okay. And it's about these monsters, these terrible monsters. Hmm. And he was explaining to us about the author who drew all of them, a whole story. But you're asking a great point. You're saying, like, how many monsters are there? What's happening here? So there is impurity. Tuma. Impurity is a source of all evil. Within impurity, generally there are two different terms we give it, which is sitra achara, the other side. Because there's a winning side, and there's the other side. That's the side of impurity. And then there's klipa. Again, klipa is another term. It's a reference to a shell, meaning it's outside. That's also... A reference to impurity. All of these together recognize themselves as separate entities from Hashem, but they recognize that Hashem still exists. In other words, there's David and I, but there's David and I were separate. Now, David may be bigger than me, I don't want to get him mad, I don't want him to hit me, but there's still David and me. Not to worry. <laughs> Continues, Tanya, with this understanding, if this be so, then the person who opposes his will, when a person goes and sins, blessed be he, is exceedingly inferior to and more debased than the Sitra Achara and the Klippa, which are called Avodazar and strange gods. The Klippa, they recognize Hashem exists and they'll never go against Him. They say, there's me and Hashem, but I'll never go against what Hashem says. But a human being, when we go, we sin against Hashem, we're worse than the impurity itself. 
Because at the moment we sin, we are completely sun. We are completely separated from His unity and oneness, even more than they, even more than impurity. As though denying His unity more radically than they, God forbid. It's very scary. When a person sins, he is denying Hashem more than the deepest and coldest and darkest impurity. Because even the, even the darkest impurity recognizes that Hashem exists. Compare what is written in Eitz Chai. We're now going to quote to you directly from Tanya. So you, we're now going to quote to you directly from the Arizal. You know, when you take silver, when you're searching for silver, so what do you do? You take the dirt and you sift it once. You find a little silver, but together with that silver and that initial sifting, there's still some dirt. And you sift it ten times. You sift it many times until you only have silver. Well, you know what is on the other side of the sifter, the part which is not silver? Now it's just dirt, nothing else. So the Arizal says that the same is true in the purification process. If you purify something enough, guess what happens? That means that there's another area where there is only impurity. As you're going to purify, as you're going to remove holiness, and collect all the holiness together, like the silver collecting it together, that means there's also another pile of impurity somewhere. Let's see this in the words of the Arizal. Compare what is written in Eitz Chai in Portal 42, end of chapter 4, that the evil which is in this material world is the dregs of the coarse kalipot. Hence, the ultimate and the purifying process. What does this mean? That just like when you make wine on the bot, when you make wine, you have the dregs, dregs of wine. The little pea particles that have not yet been separated from the wine. You need to remove that. And within the dregs, you have the thinner and thicker parts. So says the Arizal that this world, this is scary words, he says, is the dregs of the coarse klipot. All the thickest and darkest and dirtiest klipot got stuck in this world. And he continues and he says, and because of that, therefore, are all worldly things severe and evil when the wicked prevail in it. You ask, why do bad things happen? It's a very tragic thing. Well, I don't know. But there is evil. Evil exists in our world. Why have we? I, I really want to finish the next section. I'll take questions at the end if that's right. okay with you. Okay. So let's recap what we've said here. We read it a little fast, but let's recap. We said that evil knows Hashem exists. They will never go against Hashem. They reckon they think they're in existence of their own, but they know Hashem also exists. And a person who sins is worse than evil because they're going actively against Hashem. And with this introduction, we can, now con we can now connect it with what we learned previously about the Sota. This explains the commentary of our sages of blessed memory on the verse. If any man's wife turns aside, and we quoted Kisista Ishto, and the Gemara continues that no person commits any transgression unless a spirit of folly has entered into him.
Now, with our previous understanding that if someone sins their worth, then the lowest klipa, we can understand how you could only sin if a spirit of foolishness entered inside of you. Why? For even an adulterous woman, with her frivolous, na- frivolous nature, could have controlled her passionate drive, were it not for the spirit of folly in her which covers, obscures, and conceals the hidden love of her divine soul yearning to cleave to her faith in God. Even someone who's caught up in one of the lowest actions, if their soul wouldn't, wouldn't be con- covered over at that time, they could control the greatest passion for negativity. Not to lose in the unity and oneness of Hashem and not to be parted, God forbid, even at the cost of her life from His unity. By adulterous worship, God forbid, be it only by an outward acknowledgement without any belief at all in her heart. Meaning, as we learned previously in chapter 19, 20, if someone is threatening you with your life, idol worshiper, Hashem. So our makeup is we're willing to give up our life for Hashem. Hashem has made our, how do you say like when you, we've been wired that way. We've been wired, Hashem has made us, that we're going to give up our soul before we will go ahead and bow down to an idol. If that is so, if we're willing to give up our soul not to be separated from Hashem, how much more so should we, should we be able to give up on a passion which is much easier than not giving up your soul for Hashem. And that's why surely she could subdue the temptation and lust of adultery, which is lighter suffering than death. May God protect us. If we could protect ourselves, from, if we would be willing to go through the, the tremendous torture of death, God forbid, for Hashem, so then certainly we have the power to hold back from some temptation. So how then does someone sin? Gershon, this is going to address what we discussed earlier. But the distinction she makes, the foolishness is, she makes a distinction between the, in, the command against adultery and that against bowing to an idol. Is, oh, she says, bowing to an idol, that's going to separate me from Hashem. Committing this act, it's not so serious. She makes this distinction. And that is but a spirit of folly stemming from the klipa which envelops the divine soul up to, but not including its faculty of chachma. We all have the greatest soul that, it, that exists. It's unbelievable, the power that Hashem has given us. We have this tremendous soul with the five different parts of the soul and the three garments and the ten faculty and the ten... As Sufi wrote, and Hashem has wired us that we're willing to give up our, our body for our soul. We're willing to give up our body that we never disconnect our soul from Hashem. The previous Rebbe was in jail with a gun at his head. They wanted him to share information. And they put a gun to his head and they said, this toy has made many silent people talk. And the previous rabbi with the gun pointed at his head told them, he said, this toy has made people with two gods and one world talk. I believe that there's, 
I believe that there's one God in two worlds. And I'm not afraid of your toy. We are wired to be, to be willing to give up our soul. And if we're willing to give up our soul, how much more so we should be able to hold ourselves back from any temptation. So how then does a person sin? Because they're foolish, see? They're just foolish people. I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about, this. I'm talking about them. They're foolish people. They're not thinking. Let's summarize what we've learned. And then if you're mad, just don't scream at me now. Scream at me in don't, don't humiliate me in public. Do it privately. Let's summarize. Klipa, impurity, sitra they know Hashem exists and they will never go against Hashem. Like we discussed, Bilam turned to Balak and said, Balak, pay me as much as you want. Try, and, try as much. I cannot go against Hashem's command. I will not be able to... I want to! I want to curse the Jewish people! But I cannot. Klipa itself cannot go against Hashem. And a human being, a Jew, which actively goes against Hashem, sinning against one of the 613 commandments, then is lower than the impurity itself. And with this understanding that every time we do a sin, we're separating ourselves from Hashem, we now understand how only, fool, only a foolish person at the time could sin. Only by allowing ourselves, fooling ourselves and saying, oh, it's no big deal. Oh, you're just going to smack this person one time and you won't do it again. It's not a big deal. You play down. It's not, nothing's going to happen. Look, even this, uh, even this woman, she's about to commit adultery, she's, she's fooled herself. What is she telling herself? She says, this is not such a big sin. Idol worship is, I, that I understand. This is not. Now, in, in our own way, whatever the sin, whatever the co context may be, we're all playing down. We're saying, oh, I'm just going to, you know, there's a custom to tie your, which shoelace are you supposed to tie sh first? The left shoelace first. You should put on your right shoe, first and then your left shoe but your shoelaces you should tie your left shoelace first why? this is for women you see this is how this is how we're all equal why do women <coughs> tie their, sh their left shoelace first? Wait, everyone has your left shoelace first right but why? because the tefillin I put on on the left hand so we wrap our tefillin on our left hand so therefore all wrapping you, la you wrap uh, you, the tefillin goes on your left hand with your left hand Goes on, goes on your right, but for the for this con conversation for a moment. So I can tie my right shoe first. I'm not sure. I'm not sure about a lefty. I don't know. It's a good question. <laughs> but again, we tie our shoelaces with the left first to show us how great the left is. That the tying of the tefillin is on the left hand. So let's say it's a small thing. See, it's a custom. It's not even. Let's say someone goes and says, you know what? In spite. I'm going to go and tie my right shoelace first. <laughs> it's no big deal, right? But we're learning and now, actually, that no, the smallest thing, even a halacha de Rabbanan, whatever it is, we separate ourselves from Hashem when we do that. And let's not rule, say this is bigger, that's bigger. Well, the slightest thing, because many times people start with, you know, whatever. Like maybe somebody... This thing, well, I'll go to a casino and I'll play one game. Well, the next thing you know, they're going every week and they're 
you know, they're playing for their mortgage. Or Slippery whatever. slope, yeah. Well, because one is just a little thing. Right. But that thinking can... Yes, yes. That's, that's also true. Only so many fences. Only so many fences, yes. Yes. So tonight we discussed, it may have been a little negative, how serious sin is. But remember the positive we learned. That, that, that if you take the sin and you leap with it, like the Sota, she had the ultimate blessing. The ultimate blessing could come from it. Are there any questions? Yes, Doug? Perhaps there is not time to address that today, but I certainly hope you do it next week. Have we not, in, at least in my mind, painted ourselves in the corner? What happened to the Benoni at the beginning of this whole stuff? We need to get to chapter 25. That's going to wrap it all together. Next, next chapter, we're actually going to put all the last eight chapters together. To okay, that was not an appropriate answer. What you should have said was, that's a very good question, and we will deal with it in chapter 25. <laughs> Any other questions? Just sit down. Can any evangelist come next? Not, not in that way. More sorry, no questions? Yeah, can Eddie evangelize? Last week, you, you had a, a, a guest last week. Eddie huh? Pardon me? You had a guest oh, last week. Oh, only if you want. Eddie evangelize. How do you explain it? Well, based on what we've learned, we've, when someone sins and then they repent, they have a much bigger fire than when they never sinned. But it didn't say that she repented, did it? I don't recall that part. A sota never sinned. The, the sin she's accused of never happened. Okay. What, to be very clear, the Sot is accused of having the um, act of a relationship, right. right? And that never happened. Right, but just because of her accusal, that somebody accused her, good things will happen to her? If she's innocent. If she's innocent. Yeah, she's innocent. Why? That's the part <laughs> I don't understand. You know, it's a good question. I <laughs> know, uh, the truth is, I'm not, I'm not completely clear. That's a good question. The book is the only book of Talmud I've ever read where, and when I finished it, I said, This is disgusting. And where I was not comfortable and I didn't like it at all. The process it, the, it seems to me to be completely out of whack. She, did, she has to go eat some dirt in the temple yard, and it's just not, it, it, the whole thing is repellent. Unless it works. It's a good question. Unless it was magic dirt. I'm told the absolute truth. Yishai, any questions? Okay, thank you very much.